0: now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode 128 of ADHD for Smart Ass Women. This episode is brought to you by our free master series, Five Days to Fall in Love with Your ADHD Brain. Due to popular demand, we are running this program again beginning on June 21st. I think that's next week. I record in advance and I wanted to share a couple of comments from the last time we ran it. So Kirsty said, I was looking to learn about the female experience of ADHD and this has been so illuminating. The peer support you enabled as well as the positive information you've imparted and your embodiment of a woman maxing her life has been deeply meaningful and I'm incredibly grateful. Suzanne says, I cannot tell you how life-changing this week has been. And Eliza offered, you delivered so much, so generously. Thank you. You renewed my love for my brain and gave me lots of new information that I am implementing now to maximize my gifts and minimize the challenges. So again, you can sign up for our five days to fall in love with your ADHD brain series at tracyotsuka.com forward slash I love my brain. So let's get going. On this episode, I am going to introduce you to Jessica Fern. We just had a whole host of audio problems. She's now on her iPhone and we've got our fingers crossed that the audio gods are going to cooperate. Jessica is a senior director of training and development for the fourth largest multifamily management company in the United States and doubles as a national speaker, coach and strategist focusing on leadership of self and fearless failure. Jessica has been seen on the National Apartment Association and Zillow Conference stages is a reputable keynote speaker and most recently was featured on a national panel for women in leadership. She has a series on multifamily leadership studio that includes legendary leadership, which earned her the nickname, the Wolf of Leadership. I'm assuming that's a play on the Wolf of Wall Street. We'll ask Jessica. Jessica's newest project is her solutions-oriented Coaching, consulting, and podcast called Living with Einstein that shares leadership, personal, and professional secrets, all driven by ADHD and tuned in by intuition. Jessica, did I get all that right? You sure did. Thank you. I know it's a mouthful. <laughs> well, it's always a mouthful with ADHD women because we do so much, right? Yes. So, Wolf of Wall Street, I mean, is that a play, Wolf of? leadership? Is that a play on Wolf of Wild, sure Wall Street? It sure is. <laughs> okay. Yes, it sure is. Yep. One of my favorite movies. Really? Oh my gosh. I didn't get that one, but hey, that's me. Uh, <laughs> so I want to hear all about the speaking, the coaching, the leadership training, but before we go there, can we talk about ADHD first? Please. Okay. So I want to hear the circumstances surrounding your ADHD diagnoses, like when did it happen? How did it come about? All the details.
1: Awesome. Yeah, so like most people, I was diagnosed twice. And for me, it was a little bit different because I was diagnosed twice in my adult years. So one, I didn't pay attention to. The second one, I took seriously. And the second one was actually most recent when uh, when COVID hit. And it was funny because my whole life growing up and looking back into the the circumstances that surrounded my diagnosis, so many puzzle pieces were put into play. And then also like a lot of anger, like towards my parents for seeing all of these things, but not doing anything about it. And so many things, I think, pop up when you get a diagnosis, which is, crazy because nothing changes other than a label. And so for me, I was 21 when I got my first diagnosis and did nothing about it. I was like, sweet,
0: thanks. Great. And so how how did you get it, Jessica? Like, what were the circumstances surrounding that first diagnosis? Because you're right, I hear this all the time, that women, because that's who I work with and that's who I talk to, that we get a couple diagnoses and we don't even remember, you know, and then we get the second or third one. It's like, it's like, oh, wait a minute. I think someone told me this before. So what happened with the 21 year old diagnoses?
1: Yeah. So my brother was diagnosed with ADHD when he was a very young teenager And my older sister had had some mental issues of her own that are separate from ADHD. And so it was watching my brother and seeing how he interacted and how certain um, support tools like medication really helped him, I started to see very similar things in myself but didn't know how to communicate it. And I think that's one of the things that gets missed between like I'm, I just turned 35, and so my parents, when they grew up, especially my dad, who I actually just found out that he has ADHD. I mean, that's definitely where I get it from. They grew up in an era where, like, medication and mental wellness was not something that's prevalent. You, you know, cry on the inside like a winner, and you just keep going. Yeah. And so it was interesting to me, looking back, how my brother – got certain support my sister did and i really when i was going through my late teen years and then up to my diagnosis have really struggled with things like attentiveness in school i very the one of the things that i struggle with the most is rejection sensitivity and so in high school with my parents you know very distracted by other family members like it was, I was a hot mess, A <laughs> hot mess. I was working for love in all the wrong places, you know, giving up lots of things in order to get that. And I ended up missing my last semester of my junior year in high school. I just didn't go to school. I was skipping school, hanging out with people. I shouldn't have been hanging out with and passing all of my AP classes, very true to form and, It wasn't until after that, I actually found automotive uh, that helped me. And so that was a big part of my high school journey that kind of really like grabbed me back in. And then after high school,
0: just really struggling to find my place, really struggling to find my place. I was. So, Jessica, so you didn't struggle in school. Is that what you said? I didn't struggle academically. Mm -hmm. I struggled with
1: attendance. Ah. attendance was a big deal for me I just didn't go
0: but, but you still all did stuff. really well so my question for you is yes. were you just bored I was distracted is what I was I was distracted
1: uh, for me and, and definitely learning more about how rejection sensitivity impacts my life it is a overwhelming I need the, you know a b and c in order to function. It almost takes a priority that it shouldn't. And so, for example, I was in a relationship with a guy that was not very good news and he went to a different school. And so my priority instead of going to school because I knew I was doing my work was to go hang out with this guy Mm -hmm. instead, but really still feeling the importance of school. And so I wanted to make sure that I had a future and just didn't balance that correctly. You know, so I turned in my my work and just didn't go.
0: And so what happened?
1: I ended up having to make up the time after class, my senior year and senior year for me was a big turnaround. I, I was making up that time. I am now joining more activities. I was captain of my hip hop dance team and president of my media tech club and got some scholarships to do automotive, actually. And. Through the automotive class that I was taking, that teacher really, really helped me. And after high school was over and I graduated, I actually spoke at my high school graduation, which was, I think, one of the things that, like, helped click in those keynote speaker Vibes like those is something that I've always wanted to do. And when I spoke at graduation, I just told my story about things that I had been through and challenges and authenticity. It was the very first time that I realized that I have a gift of perspective, that the way that I see things is different, the way that I can communicate things is different. So, taking everything that I had been through and then placing it kind of at a capstone there was really impactful for me. And then after high school was over, I was trying to go to college, I was working at 24 Hour Fitness at the time, and just could not balance those two things, and ended up leaving school, leaving that job, moved back home for a little bit, and then found myself as a temporary worker at a hardwood flooring company and almost lost my job because I just was distracted, couldn't get it together, and it was at that point where I went and got help the first time.
0: So did you try medication then or anything, or you just got diagnosed and then said, whatever? So I got diagnosed, and the reason I didn't take
1: medication, seeing how well it worked for my brother, I didn't take medication because I shortly found out, found out after that I was pregnant with my son, who's now 13. Got so it. that's why I didn't, and I just kind of dealt with it. The job that I, the, well, the industry, I've been multifamily, and I think this is one of the reasons why I've been able to make it so far with tools on my own is it is so fast paced and i am a competitive person i like to be recognized i like to do a good job those are all things that create a very nice level of dopamine for me mm-hmm. <laughs> that made it sustainable and i am now climbing the ladder and by this time, I you know, have had my daughter and have found this company that I'm working at now. And I go from managing properties to in the corporate office and training and development, having opportunities to speak. Now I'm director. Now I'm senior director and I'm traveling and I'm speaking and I'm writing and impacting this huge company. And then here comes COVID and takes oh. all of that away.
0: Oh, of my these, gosh. Travel. I get
1: it. Yes the travel, the adventure. And I mean, in the meantime, I'm now going through a divorce and, you know, dating and you can't give anyone who has ADHD and rejection sensitivity a dating app in free time. Like it's not, those are not things that work out well. And, you know, had some relationships that, you know, were not amazing. And I almost lost one of them that was you know, it was okay. Looking back, not great, but you know, I can I can throw it in that category. At least enough to open my eyes, where I could not get control of my feelings. They were all over the place. I couldn't concentrate at work, and it literally just felt
0: like I was holding my breath all day. And this was why, because of everything, or specifically because of you know having to get out there and date.
1: Uh, No, it was everything. Uh, I think for me, I I will come back to like the dating and the love piece because of the rejection sensitivity and how much that impacts me. Mm -hmm. But that, that that was the trigger. That was one of the red flags is I am so incredibly affected by this on top of it being a distraction at work. Uh, making sure that I am, I'm a single mom, you know, I'm taking care of my kids all day and I don't want to be a stay-at-home mom. Those are not things that I'm good at or like to do. (laughs) And I'm used to traveling and all of that adventure and freedom. And, you know, it was really a combination of everything to have to wake up in the morning make sure that my kids are good. They're homeschool learning. I'm working from home. And it's just so much. Everything feels like so much. And I would lose control of my feelings.
0: And it makes total sense, right? They always say, especially for women. I mean, if you look at everything that's on your plate, your responsibilities had gotten to the point where it was just too many responsibilities for, you know, your ability to handle them. So it makes sense to me. Yes, definitely. And
1: I've been... I, my my second diagnosis happened a little over a year ago, and I did start making, taking medication. And I think one of the things that I did for myself that it took me a while, but, you know, sometimes you are handed this diagnosis, you're handed medication, and you're expected to just, like, go out there and be somebody. And it wasn't until... A couple months later that I realized that I really needed counseling, that this is not a nine to five problem. It is a 24-7 part. And I really struggled, even though I've always known that I've had it, especially doing more of a deep dive into who I am with a counselor. I had a hard time accepting that this was part of who I was, that this was a nine to five problem, not a Jessica problem. And it, wasn't, and it wasn't a problem at all. It's just a part of my script and who I am as a person. And it doesn't define me. It's a part of who I am. And it was my mom who helped me see all of the wonderful things that I've been able to do because of it. And there was so much emotion surrounding just, yes, this is definitely you that it was hard to accept for a while. And I think that's why I didn't do the, like, wraparound work.
0: You know, you can't just take medication and call it a day. (laughs) There's so much else that goes into it. And that's what's so sad, because that's usually what we get when we go to the doctor and we're diagnosed, right? We're handed a prescription, and it's like, okay, you're on your merry way, and you're so right. It is part of the equation. And frankly, medication is a fairly small part of the equation. It's an important part. And if you're lucky enough that it works, it can be life changing, but it's only part of it. So tell me, what are the things that you, I love the fact that what really turned it around for you is not just focusing on the weaknesses and the things you couldn't do, but really, you know, paying a lot of attention to the strengths and all the things that you're so brilliant at. So what did you work on with this counselor that really made a difference to not only you and your life, but this problem that a lot of women have? And it seems to be the subject everybody wants to talk about, which is rejection sensitivity dysphoria. So what are the things that you've put into place that have really made a difference for you? Awesome. So I, I think one of the biggest was why now? Like why
1: right now? is this such a problem? And understanding, number one, that this is a part of me and has always been a part of me was really, really critical. I had that my marriage that I had come out of was not a great one. You know, I think that A lot of women find themselves in that position because we get time blindness and we forgive easy and we do get rejection sensitivity. And I think there is some susceptibility to narcissism, which was what the relationship that I was in afterwards. And when you come out of a fight or flight mode and your body is able to relax, sometimes your authentic self is, is showing up. We are exactly who we need to be. In every single situation that we are in and that doesn't always mean that who I am now is who I was then and so understanding why it's happening now how come right now with everything that I've been through can I not take it because it can make you feel very weak and understanding that I might have a core belief that I'm not good enough that that is underneath things like it's really it's what fuels the so rejection for me is that core belief that I'm not good enough and doing work around it and acknowledging it is was also really critical. For me, coming out of fight or flight with my counselor was really important because it allowed me to identify that when I would go into situations that required emotion, well, where I felt I was being strong, that's actually called avoidance when you don't open up. So if, yeah, if I don't give you anything to hurt, then you can't hurt me and I can flip that switch off really quick. And I remember, I remember when she brought it up because, you know, I've done research on ADHD. I'm that person. Like I want to know everything about my own body and She's like, we're talking about this new relationship that I that I'm in, and I'm actually marrying this person in September. He's wonderful. Congratulations! And I would get really. Thank you. It's been it's been a long time coming, Uh, but I would get very insecure if I would send him a text message and he wouldn't text me back. You get that? Oh my gosh, does he hate me? Does he not love me? Is he you know Mm -hmm. forgetting about me? Same thing, you know, when you get those emails at work or your email password doesn't work, you're like, I'm fired. I am fired today. It's that same rejection feeling that comes up. And so I'm telling her about the situation and she was like, have you ever heard of uh, rejection sensitivity? And I love how she brings things to my attention because I'm a really like, I'm a, I'm a strong personality. So I love how she brings things up. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't really care what people think. And she's like, well, it sounds like maybe you do a little bit care because, you know, you were feeling that you weren't, you know, worthy or good enough or you didn't get a message back or weren't getting that attention that you needed and it made you want to shut down. And I was like, stop being so right. You know, stop being so right. And rejection sensitivity for me is actually one of my biggest symptoms. And having to had shut down my emotions for so long in my previous marriage was like, I did not realize how much damage occurred because of that. It it ended up changing my entire life, uh, becoming familiar with this. And one of the things that has helped me the most is to talk about it. I talk about it in my keynote speeches. I talk about it in things that I write. I think that there is a calling right now for things like trauma and damage and rejection in the workplace that's not being talked about. And the more attention that I feel like I can bring to it, the better. It's the one thing after I'm doing a speech or uh, have delivered a workshop that I get the most comments about is thank you for talking about rejection sensitivity. And it is the the most critical thing that I can identify that has helped is to understand what core belief is underneath that. Like, why do you feel not worthy? For me, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to recover from it, but I can manage it. And I know when I get that, I get a physical response. Most of us get that cognitive physical response where you know that it's coming. And instead of flying off the deep end, you know, with, action. So in my case, I would, you know, cut it off before they could cut me off. But here I am making decisions that aren't even real, because I'm learning to separate fact and feeling. If I feel that, and I am seeing that maybe that's where my responses are going,
0: I can do some work around it to identify where it's really coming from. Okay, so let's get real practical here. So let's say your fiance. You send him a text, and you don't hear back from him for four hours. And so the rejection sensitivity starts rearing its head. How did you handle it before, and how do you handle it now? Before, I would probably make up something
1: that said I was equally busy. Like, hey, I've got plans tonight, so I don't know if you were planning on coming over, but I'm busy. (laughs) Yeah, so it would be something like that. Because in my head, if you're not communicating back with me, I'm not important. So I'm going to make you feel not important before you can make me feel not important. So now, create I, exactly
0: what you're worried about. Yes. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. I know. And it almost
1: becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy, sure. you know, and we like, I see it at work all the time, too. If folks are feeling not confident at their own ability, they'll be looking for a new job. Uh, like, let's just see what's out there in the event that I lose mine. And most of it's self-inflicted. Anytime you don't need another individual to decide how you feel and take action on it, there's a problem there. Because usually there's a story involved that you're telling yourself. And that's what I was doing. I was telling myself stories because that feeling was so strong. It felt like a fact. My feelings became the truth. Now, I ask questions. I check myself before I wreck myself. And I will say, hey, yeah, I know that I haven't heard back from you. Is everything okay? Are you busy? And also understanding what belongs to me, so what's my stuff? Is it my worry or concern or my time frame? And what's his stuff or another person's stuff? Just because I might have the ability to text back or communicate does not mean another person does. So separating those perspectives and then also asking questions before jumping to a conclusion is so incredibly important because it allows you an opportunity to process how you're feeling and then the other person to explain their side of the story and for you to trust in those words. So there's a lot, there's a lot of skill in being able to do
0: that, but to slow down and ask questions, that's what I do now. So do you put a pause in when you're starting to feel like the rejection sensitivity is coming up? Is there a pause that you put in? Is there, like, what is the process? What is going through either your brain or your body or, your, you know, what actions? Like, do you have a system? I do, yeah. And it was something that
1: now feels second nature, but before felt awful because there is, you know, the flooding of emotion that happens with ADHD where you do you're not even chemically able to slow down and break things down. And so to learn how to do that, I work backwards. So if I got that feeling, I will sit there and think about, okay, before I respond, I need to figure out what my feeling is and I'll work backwards. Well, what happened right before that feeling? How do I respond? And my counselor helped me go through some cognitive exercises that allows me to identify how I physically feel like by hands will tense up. My stomach gets upset. Like there are really uh, signifying factors that will tell you this is coming up. And then for me, before I respond, I just, I need to figure it out. And that was not easy to do at first, but I would work backwards. I'm feeling not important. And it's even hard to say out loud, especially for someone who is strong and capable and I mean, there are lots of really big topics I communicate about all the time, but here I am, upset over a text message. So even to admit to myself, I feel not important because I'm not being responded to. And I'm not being responded to because I didn't get this text back. And I feel like if I would make room for someone and they won't make room for me, I must not be worthy. I must be less important than whatever is going on. Then I have to ask myself, how much truth is behind that? Can I support that feeling with actual things? Like, what do I have to support that? What do I have not to? And if I can't do those things, then I need to ask. I need to ask and I need to reframe that feeling. And also being comfortable with expressing how I feel. Because if we don't let the people around us know how we're feeling, sometimes those responses aren't good enough. For example, if I am feeling unworthy of being responded to, and i finally do get a response and it's not like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. You're so important. (laughs) I'm going to be irritated. Yeah. But there's an expectation that hasn't been communicated. So That was, that was the other part. Number one is understanding what it was exactly that was really, really hurting my feelings. And then the second was to be able to tell my partner, Hey, if I don't serve back from you, it makes me feel like this Here's why. So that way he's aware and he knows, so I can give him the benefit of the doubt, but he also knows that this is an area that I need more support
0: and I have to be able to communicate where I need support. And that was also very helpful. Makes perfect sense. And do you find that the more you practice these new skills, that the rejection sensitivity is getting less and less?
1: Absolutely. I am a significantly less neurotic rejection sensitivity person today than I was six months ago. And a lot of it was just getting familiar with why. Why? And those those little parts about ourselves, the parts that we want to hide, those are the ones that usually impact us the most. I'm still doing some work around why I feel like I'm not good enough. And from the work that I've done so far, it's just really identifying the earliest possible example that I can think of right there with that in that space and that I'm not good enough space and then working forward. So, I know it's there. I know that I have to be conscientious of how that can show up for me, but my rejection sensitivity is significantly less life ruining. And my, my poor fiance, not only do I get emotional flooding and a lot of hyper-focus, like I'm one of those people who get stuck with something and can't move on until it's resolved. Mm -hmm. I also have HSP, which means I feel everything at such a depth that you you wouldn't even be able to explain. And I can't work through those emotions very well. So I was a hot mess. I was a hot mess. And I do really feel like I've got it under control. And to be able to have that perspective and incorporate that into the things that I now speak on and coach on and lead on is really important because it allows people around you to feel okay to not feel okay and i do feel like there is a really amazing shift that's happening in humans and in leadership and in our culture
0: where it is okay
1: to say those things out loud.
0: We just have to get out of our own way to be able to talk about them. Yeah, and then we can be our authentic selves, right? And i hate that word, but it's true. <laughs> we can be who we yeah. want to be. <laughs> so, Jessica, thank you for sharing that. I know, and you know, as i mentioned before, whenever we talk about RSD, that just seems to be the topic that so many women are interested in and struggle with. So I appreciate your sharing that. So the next thing I want to know is I want to know about the keynote speaking, the professional speaking. Like, how did that come about?
1: Yeah. So my, my first speaking experience, the Ohio School graduation, telling my story. And when I got into corporate training at the company I work for now. Impacting people has always been a very important part of my life. Before I transitioned into corporate speaking, I took a two-year leadership course called the Practice of Adaptive Leadership. So I learned through those two years how important values are to individuals and how our decisions come from values. And I've always been able to look at things in a very cool perspective. I like to take small concepts like how muscles repair themselves after a certain amount of stress to help people visualize what it looks like to incorporate failure as a part of a journey. And the more I'm talking about these things, the more I'm sharing different perspectives, the more I'm being asked to share those in public. And so my very first speaking engagement was at our local apartment association in Washington State, where I live. And I did a maintenance- training on leadership. And I remember when I was writing it, I was like, okay, what are two things I really love? And I was like, football and leadership. And then my brain is because I am not one of those people who can't focus. Everything gets too much focus. So I'm an over-focused individual. And the gift with that though, is that you can see 18 different lines of data on five different things at the same time, and how they correlate. And Mm -hmm. so it allows me to pull in multiple topics and create connections that you wouldn't usually see. I believe there's actually a word for that for people who pull meaning from absolutely nothing. That's me. (laughs) That's
0: definitely me. Well, that's ADHD, though, you know, that we are ideation machines. And the deal is that we don't just see one thought, we see them all at the same time, or we don't have one thought. We, we have them all at the same time, but we are typically able to take all those thoughts and then turn them into something that no one else has thought about. So yes, you that is so ADHD. Yes, and it is
1: how I have been able to be as successful as I, as I am. It's, the, it's the, over, the over-focus and the wanting to keep going, keep going, keep going, is definitely driven by my uh, dopamine support, which is a win of competition, you know, giving a speech. There's lots of dopamine that comes with that. And it's one of the reasons I was able to make it for so long without, you know, my second diagnosis. But after that particular speech, I got really great feedback. And I got asked to do a one for uh, property management staff. And then I have other entities reaching out asking if I can do some speeches for them. And they all are really centered around leadership of self, because I truly believe that in order to be a good leader, you have to be a good example. And so there's lots of information out there on how to get other people to do what it is that you want them to do in a way that they feel good about. But I really focus on how do I get in my best space so I can lead other people. Because I do believe that when you are passionate and when you are authentic and when you are competent and confident, people will gravitate towards you, and it's the mentorship skills that you learn to recognize in others by what you've learned to recognize in yourself. And so I do things a little bit differently. So I was invited to film some uh, studio series, multifamily leadership, and. Uh, I had connected with this group of individuals who are wonderful and I flew to Arizona and I'm going to do my my leadership training that I've written and I write my own stuff and I develop it here in my home office and I'm super nervous because it's the first time I've done anything like this and I'm also an oversharer and I don't have a very good gauge as to what to say or what not to say, which is great (laughs) because I don't second guess myself. I don't. I just say it. Here it is, in your face. We're just doing it. I, do, I don't get in my own way. It's another really big gift is innovation needs ADHD because we don't second guess ourselves. Yeah. And so I'm
0: Impulsivity like doing too.
1: this leadership thing. Impulsivity, yeah, just going for it. just out here doing Run things, just unapologetically me. Yep. And so I get done with, with episode one and they look at me and they're like, I don't think you realize how big this is. And I'm just over here like, just really? (laughs) I'm just doing my thing. And that was a really big game changer for me. And how I earned the nickname, the Wolf of Leadership, is because it is fearless and it's in your face And it does call you to the table to, you know, before you worry about leading others, can you lead yourself? Do you know what you stand for? Do you know how you influence and interact others and really calling people to that journey to get to know themselves before they even attempt to lead other people? And being called a leader is one of the most sexy things that an organization can call you, but you don't really get to assign that to yourself. Like I don't get to call myself a leader. It's not a way that I even look at myself, even though I've got a team I, I know I've got good leadership skills, but that can come and go. Like You don't get to show up and pick and choose when you want to be a leader. You have to re-earn it every single day. And it's a big commitment. And understanding that to be in that space, you got to be in your own space so good where you don't need that from others. You don't get insecure. Because what happens is if we're not good with ourselves, we take other people's wins as threats to our own. We will stop giving away all of the credit and taking the blame. Then that's what a good leader should do. We will start positioning ourselves to climb over others instead of underneath them to support. And I see the way that this is happening. And I'm also seeing that a lot of it is fear driven, right? What am I afraid of? What am I not doing? What am I feeling like? If I try this, are they going to think that I can't do this? And so from leadership transitioned uh, a piece that I wrote called Rise and Fail. I'm very passionate about failing. I'm an expert in what doesn't work. And it's because yeah. I've learned the hard way <laughs>
0: lots of different times. It's the best lessons. And
1: yeah, it's the best lessons. And from failure, I've created metrics on how to fail correctly. How to, I, I actually call it how to fail like you have ADHD, which is with zero regrets, right? Because we don't necessarily always overthink things before diving in. And it, it, that is another big guess is not second guessing yourself. And where does that fear come from and being able to break it down? What changed for my speaking from before I got diagnosed to after is, I didn't necessarily, like, I knew that I knew all of these things, perspective, failure. I knew I had a really cool way of looking at stuff, but part of me knew that there was more there. Like I could go deeper into my journey, into ADHD. How does this really impact the things that I'm saying? Like it was almost like a missing piece. And After my diagnosis, I, well, I spoke virtually a lot last year and I started telling the world about my journey, which was really hard for me. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. I've got a lot of public facing opportunities and it was just something that I kept to myself. And my speaking now is very authentic And I actually, I just wrote a really amazing workshop that I'm doing for the Washington um, International Real Estate Management Brokers Association, and it's called Get All With Your Bad Self. And we are going in places that talk about trauma and damage and repair and rejection and how important it is to incorporate that into who you are as a person, to be a better leader, and then how to recognize and support that in others. Those are not things. I would have talked about. It's more an experience than a theory. I think before I was really talking about these really cool theories and how to look at things differently, and they were very well received. They made a lot of different impacts on people, but now it's making a difference. It went from an impact to a difference. And being in touch with that part of myself has been exceptionally eye-opening and wonderful and I think my biggest accomplishment is um, being able. This sounds ridiculous, but I've been able to cry and show emotion prior to this year. I have not cried since I had my daughter nine years ago, and that is just for me such a testament of when you get to know you and you not just acknowledge it but accept it and incorporate it. That authenticity, that integrity, who you are, fearlessly. Like no one can even, no one can mess with you when you are that good, when you are that in tune to your own self and helping people see that you have a choice with what you give power to and you teach people how to treat you and being okay with changing those relationships, getting rid of the things that don't support you. That's, that's my mission now is giving people the freedom to be able to own their selves, build boundaries around it and go take on the damn world.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay, so I have a question for you about the uh, professional speaking. I have no working memory. I cannot even memorize one chorus of a song. And the last time I could do that was before puberty. I used to have a really good memory. And if you throw a little anxiety in, my whole brain wipes clean. So if I'm going to speak, I can't even remember what I'm coming out to speak on if there's any anxiety. So what that means is I no longer will agree to speak without an outline that's in front of me. The last time that I agreed to speak without one, I prepared to the nines, literally weeks of preparation, and on the day of the speech, I walked out and literally couldn't remember why I was there. I had no outline, nothing, and it's almost like my brain was on a runway, and it couldn't even start, so I couldn't take off. So I literally had to reset my brain like a computer by going backstage and then walking out again imagine how embarrassing that is. So I remember when I was young, my dad told me, you should be in a soap opera. You should be a soap opera actress because I was so dramatic. And he wasn't trying to be a jerk. He really thought that I'd be good at this. And I remember (laughs) even then thinking, I'd love to do that. I was probably, oh, I don't know, maybe 13 or 14. And I remember thinking, I'd love to do that. But in the back of my mind, I knew I couldn't because I, I could never memorize the lines and you just can't wing it. So I know that all of our brains are different. And I know that a lot of actors have ADHD. A lot of speakers have ADHD. So they can memorize. My son has a really strong working memory. And I am wondering, do you struggle with working memory? Or can you just get out there and go? You remember what it is that you want to say?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So it's it's actually it's different for me. Uh, there are I actually feel like the medication that I'm on now because I've changed a couple of times, I take Vyvanse now, that has impacted my working memory more than other medications have, but this one works best for my body. So prior to that, I could just I just memorize stuff. I can just see it, I can see it in my brain. I didn't have to worry about it. I also don't really prepare, like I, I prepare, I write my presentation, I've got my notes, But what transitions for me, especially having, you know, the switch medications and not having access to that part is really focusing on what do I want people to hear versus what do I want to say? And when I switch that mind frame, I can talk about anything. I could go give a keynote right this second if someone gave me a topic because I'm really focused on what do I want you to hear? And so it's less Here's the words that I need to say. At the end of the day, I'm the expert. It's my topic. And HSP gives me a really unfair advantage from being able to feel and read the room on what people need to say. And memorizing things and having that pressure is, for me, it's almost a jam-up. At the end of the day, nobody's going to remember what words I said and when. They're going to remember how I made them feel. And so I just approach it from how do you walk away feeling impacted and empowered versus, you know, are you going to remember the statistics? So I will do that. If I have statistics to share or if I have things that I absolutely want to communicate, I'll put them on my slides. I usually, when I'm designing, I don't put a lot of words up. Like I like to just take people on a visual journey.
0: So, Jessica, what are the ADHD traits that you feel are responsible for your success?
1: I love this question because it is one of the superpowers about having ADHD is what I attribute to my success. And some of those features and traits include number one, (laughs) hyperfocus, which I thought was just an insane amount of interest in a specific topic. And it is one of the traits that actually got me through most of my career without even knowing that ADHD was such a big part of my life. So without a formal diagnosis, being able to dive into topics and to be able to see them in such an interesting way with a level of depth definitely helped shape my perspective to be very different. Than anybody else who was doing some work in, in the leadership space specifically. So being able to look at things differently and have such an interest and passion when communicating was absolutely exceptional. The other one is definitely being impulsive because one of the things that I'm known for is kind of an in-your-face leadership style. So, you know, going back to like the wolf of leadership story, I don't always think about what I'm going to say before I say it. It's almost that impulsive oversharing. I can't believe I just said that, but on stage in front of a lot of people, it was great not to have to second guess how I felt. I think it's such a testament to what a superpower having ADHD is, especially with innovation, is I'm not capable of second-guessing myself or even spending too much time in an area where I overthink what I'm doing. I just kind of dive in and trust my intuition. So hyper-focus, not second-guessing myself and just being really fearless about exactly who I am and really not having... And understanding that I was any different than anybody else, I think that really helped me stay the course and being able to leverage gifts that are really fueled by, you know, dopamine and energy, those things that keep you going. Being able to land in a space that supported my goals and my passion while leveraging those gifts at the same time has been awesome. There's still things I pull on.
0: Yeah. So what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is then? So for me, it's almost a,
1: I like to forget sometimes that I have it, but you know, once you know, you know, it's hard to like undo that particular mindset, but I really love to create my own path and my own script. So Understanding that I'm not going to conform to something that doesn't apply to me is really important. It's almost using, uh, whether it's an environment or a culture or a workspace or a task, almost using that as a first draft. And then framing that how I work best or understanding what I can bring to the table is really important because going into work, going into even a situation or conversation, understanding how it impacts me and how I need to be successful is really important. And it removes some of that uncomfortability with how I know that I operate into how I almost uncomfortable. It could make other people feel. So that's the biggest one is just being very aware of what I need to be successful
0: and, and asking for those things. You're basically saying that, um, you're the expert on you and you trust you first.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that giving myself time to, let my—I call it—letting my brain out of the cage. I have <laughs> strategic. I do. I have strategic time during the week where I get to be my ADHD bad self, and it's usually on a mountain bike. I'm a huge mountain biker, and for me, finding something where I am allowed to think about 18 things at once, I can move as fast as I want think as hard as I want, talk about crazy stuff. In my head, you know, I have, I've been known to rewrite keynote speeches on a mountain bike the night before I give a speech because of how well and clearly I'm thinking out there. So giving myself the freedom to be exactly me. Sometimes we can feel in society that we have to be inside of a box, but letting your ADHD freak flag fly it's like my favorite time and it allows me to really just connect with the gifts that make me me in the first place
0: well and the great thing about mountain biking is you have not only the exercise component but you also have the nature component so it's kind of like a double dopamine whammy
1: oh my gosh absolutely it is my it's my favorite place to be
0: and maybe some danger in there too huh Oh, a little bit. Yep, I like to live. I like to live dangerously. <laughs> so, if you were going to share uh, uh, with us your number one ADHD workaround, what would it be? Nutrition, absolutely.
1: I've always been a healthy person. I love exercise. I like to eat well. And it is insane the damage that stress can do on the body. And I find that when I'm not eating well, and that doesn't necessarily mean nutritiously, that could mean enough, often Mm -hmm. enough, Um, In a way that's supporting my body more when I'm exercising, making sure that I'm balancing what I'm eating with how I'm exercising. A lot of folks, myself included, who take stimulant medication, sometimes we just forget to eat. And I definitely notice how my brain fog will kick in. I'm more tired. I'm more sluggish. And so making sure that nutrition is a partner for me is the number one thing that makes a difference for me in my
0: life. I can totally relate to that. In fact, I wrote a note here as you started to talk about nutrition and I said, do you forget to eat?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I was not that person before and when I started taking medication and these, you know, these are definitely things that I talk about openly when I'm, you know, talking about my, both my kids have ADHD and, uh, take medication for it. It was something that I was concerned about when I start, when I started taking medication, I would forget to eat, but all day and had some pretty crazy side effects and coupled with stress, I landed myself with some stomach damage and it wasn't medication related. It was more stress, but that didn't help because I didn't want to eat at that time Mm -hmm. and getting nutrition clicked in. I was able to reduce the amount of medication that I was taking. I was sleeping better, operating better and it was within days I had um, an MRT test done, so it tests for food intolerances, and I actually have quite a few, but as soon as I clicked those in, um, you know, and also paying attention to, you know, gluten and ADHD are not friends, sugar and ADHD are not friends, I became a whole new person in a week, having clicked the right things in.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing what uh, the right nutrition can do. Yeah. To, for your brain. I, I completely agree. So is there something, Jessica, that you're working on that you want to tell us about before I let you go today? Yes, I have so many wonderful projects
1: that I'm working on. Um, I've got a, a a leadership series that I'm doing with the Washington State International Real Estate Management company. And uh, you can look them up on LinkedIn because this particular workshop is really for leaders, not necessarily in the multifamily capacity, but leaders in general. That It's a four-part workshop. We just did one. There's three left where we are going to be diving into fear and conflict and mental wellness in the workplace and how that affects leadership. That's a space that my uh, podcast living with Einstein and my Einstein solutions products that I'm working on is a really going to impact is that leadership of self and calling your authentic self to the table, getting to know that person and how do you fit into the world. So I've got that, that workshop, I've got Einstein that I'm working on, and that's a podcast that's accessible on Spotify, Apple, Google, just called Living with Einstein. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, and I'm pretty open about the projects that I'm working on. So I've got some speaking engagements coming up at uh, Multifamily Midwest and in Indiana. I'm super excited to travel somewhere, and I'm sure there'll be more down the road.
0: Jessica, you sound so ADHD. <laughs> I, know. No, I know. You're a single mom with how many kids? Was it three or two? Two. I you got two. Well, my hat goes off to you. Thank you so much for spending time with us here today. That was super fun. And that is what I have for all of you this week. This episode of ADHD for Smart Ass Women, it was brought to you by our free master series. We're going to be running it again on Monday, June 21st, and you can sign up at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash I love my brain. Again, if you like this episode with Jessica, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they, too, may discover their amazing strengths. Thank you so much, and I will see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smart-ass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at TracyOtsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is AOK" system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.